So as we gather together at 8.30 this morning, as we do every Sunday morning, we gather together as a people. I would invite you to, I'd invite you to join us if you've not yet done that. But we gather down there in the fellowship hall at 8.30 every, every Sunday morning, and we pray and ask God to prepare our hearts for our time of corporate worship here in this, here in this room. And as we gather together this morning, uh, one of our students spoke up in prayer, and, and during her prayer, she said, God, would you make us to be strong and courageous? Obviously a reference to the, to the words of God to Joshua as he prepared to lead his, lead his people there into the promised land. And obviously, obviously John Mark had not heeded those words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. John Mark was both terrified, discouraged, and so he headed back home. He didn't, he didn't finish the task. And I can, I can just imagine the sorrow and the brokenness and the regret that he must have felt as he came back into town and people asked, where's, where's Paul? Where's Barnabas? Did you finish the job? And he had to tell them, no, it was too much. I, I didn't count the cost. I hadn't considered what it would actually cost to truly follow after what it is that, that God has called me to. And yet, as we discussed last week, this was just the beginning of Mark's story, not the end. While God allowed Mark to feel the sting of failure, God's intention in this was not to crush him. He was disciplining him like a loving father. He was preparing him to record for us this first gospel that we read from this morning. And I thank God for that. I thank God for the encouragement that we can stand on the truth that he works all things together for good of those that love him, that those that have been called according to his purpose, that for those of us that truly love him, and have, love him and have been called, that no matter how badly the discipline stings, we know that it is not in his intention to crush us, to discourage us, or to drive us away. So go ahead and stand your feet, please, as we read from Mark's gospel. We're right back in the first chapter, first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? In your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. And so as I, as I mentioned to you last week, Mark's gospel was written primarily for the sake of Gentile believers, those that had not grown up learning and reading and memorizing the uh, Old Testament, the laws that went along with that. And yet what we find right here at the beginning of his gospel is that he jumps right out of the gates with a quote, with a quote from the prophets. And I believe 
part of what Mark is doing here, what God is doing through Mark here, is he's making it clear to us that not only is there continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, not only is this all God's redeeming work throughout history, but that we can't rightly understand Jesus if we don't view him through the lens of all that which he came to fulfill. That it is right and good that we see that which came before, those signs, those pointers, those markers that were pointing forward to him. And so as was, as was common amongst Jews in, in the first century, uh, they, they would put together a number of scriptures. They would, almost a tapestry of sorts from the prophets, and then they would quote, they would reference only that prophet which was most well known in this case being Isaiah. And so what we have here, actually in that, that first sentence, comes from Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then that second, second verse comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 43. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. These very same words were referenced in Matthew and Luke, and in, and in fact, if you, look at, if you look at Luke's gospel, you'll see that he's added some additional words there from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So for those that would have been familiar with God's promises, for those that have been familiar with these prophetic words, this would have elicited great hope in them. Remembering now that for some 500 years there had been no public word from God. He had spoken through a couple of angels in preparing the way for this, but that was 30 years earlier. And now here he is, and he's, 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 he's pointing forward. He's speaking publicly before these people. And certainly the people that would have heard these words, this would have, this would have bolstered something within them, this excitement. Because for all of these 500 years, they had been looking forward to the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the eternal king that would come and make all things straight. Yet at the same time, no great king announces himself. No great king shows up and says, here I am, I'm the king. You see, there's always one that goes before the king. A herald, a harbinger, a messenger. Somebody that comes before him and says, make straight your paths. You see, the king is coming, and you need to make sure that anything that would hinder his coming, anything that would hinder your reception of his coming, you need to prepare for that. And so as the people heard this, they would have understood not only is the king coming, but the messenger is coming before him. And I think if we read the very last verses in the Old Testament, if you read right there at the end of Malachi, I think it gives us some insight into what it was these people would have understood. A messenger coming before this eternal king. So if you read in Malachi 4, 5 through 7, the last words in the Old Testament, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So in the minds of these people, surely this forerunner, this one that was coming before the eternal promised king, it had to be Elijah. You see, Elijah was a man that, despite his weakness, despite his bouts of depression, God used him in a mighty way. God spoke through him and, in conf and confronted evil king Ahab and Jezebel. He had defeated there the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. God had just, throughout the life of Elijah, he had, he had used him to speak these hard truths. In addition to that, if you, if you read at the end of, in, in, in 2 Kings, you read at the end of Elijah's life, as he has passed the mantle to Elisha, the one that would take over as prophet after him, what you read there is that Elijah is swept, swept up into a whirlwind into heaven. So that Elijah was on, one of only two men that never tasted natural death. He, along with a man named Enoch. And so it would have been certainly natural for the people to understand and to expect that this Elijah was going to literally return. Why else would God sweep him up into heaven, not allow him to die a natural death like the rest of us? And so surely based on those final words in the Old Testament, based on the way in which Elijah left this earth, 
They were sure that this was going to be Elijah that was going to come back and make these ways straight, prepare the way for this promised king. And yet Mark wastes absolutely no time making clear this was not Elijah. Because we read in verse 4, John appeared. This is John, the son of Zechariah, the priest, that had received a word from Gabriel telling him that this, this was to be the, fore, the forerunner. The messenger that comes before God. And if you read, that, you read that message from Gabriel to Zechariah, it goes like this in Luke 1, 15 through 17. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a, pe a people prepared. Making clear that this promised messenger, this was not an actual return of Elijah, that this was a different man. This was the one that was promised. One that was filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. And yet he would come in the power and in the spirit much like Elijah. That God was going to use him in a very similar way. That he was going to be the one that prepared the hearts for people. That he was going to be the one that called the people back to repentance to prepare for this king. But you've got to remember now that we as readers, we know things about the story that the people in the story don't actually know. These people hadn't read all of these words. These people weren't there when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah. And so they wouldn't have fully understood this. And if you look at the life of John, it looked an awful lot like Elijah. What we read this morning. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts of wild honey. So John had removed himself from the comforts of Jerusalem. The delicacies, the normal food, he had gone out into the wilderness to separate from the people and live a, a very ascetic life. I believe God was making clear to us there that a life of discipleship is going to be one of sacrifice. It's going to be one of separateness at times, one of separation and loneliness at times. And throughout Scripture, what we see is that God uses the wilderness in, in a very special way. He, he consistently calls his people to himself. He, he meets with them there in the wilderness. He disciplines them in the wilderness. He speaks to them in the wilderness. He saves them in the wilderness. And we saw that in the life of Elijah as well. Consistently, he was going off into the wilderness. And it, while there in the wilderness, he too ate weird food. Not locusts and honey, but that ravens would bring him this food that he would eat there. Then in addition to that, if, you, if you're reading 2 Kings 1, 7 through 8, what you see is that Elijah, has, he's confronted King Ahaziah and, uh, through, his, through his messengers, and his messengers come back and deliver that, deliver that message to the king, and he wants to know, who is this man that would speak against me? Who is he? And this is the way they answer. He wore garments of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. So you've got a man proclaiming the word of God. Proclaiming repentance, pointing people back towards God in the wilderness, dressed in clothes of hair with a leather belt, eating weird food. It's no wonder these people believed that this was the prophet Elijah. And so we see this here as they come out to him and they're asking, who are you, John? In John 1, 19 through 23, it says this, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Christ. I'm one different. 
And yet at the same time, I am the one that was spoken about in the Old Testament, the one that would declare that we need to make straight our paths, that we need to prepare our hearts, that we need to ready ourselves for this promised king, for this Christ, this anointed one. And part of the way that I'm going to do that is through baptizing. John baptized. John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to baptize. But why baptism? You ever wondered, why do we baptize people? Because John did it? Why did John do it? What did it mean to baptize? You don't see Abraham baptizing. You don't see Moses baptizing. You don't see King David baptizing. Where do we get baptism from? Well, there certainly there was, two, there was two specific rites amongst God's people that seemed to point this direction. One of those is ceremonial, ritual cleansing. You'll remember that before God called his people to meet with them there on Mount Sinai, they did told them for two days they were to wash themselves, to cleanse themselves before they came to meet with him there on Mount Sinai. In addition to that, you'll remember that the sons of Aaron, the priests, before they could go into the temple, that it was important that they cleanse themselves, that they prepared themselves, not just a physical cleansing, of course, but evidence of a, of a need to be cleansed from sin, of a need to be washed clean, that nobody comes in the presence of God with sin still clinging to them. Or the, the people of Israel, for that matter, if they did anything that caused them to become unclean, whether it was touching a dead body, whether it was eating something that was unclean, whether it was just starting their menstrual cycle, something like that that caused them to be unclean, that they then had to come and undergo this ceremonial cleansing before they could come into the presence of God, before they could come into the temple, before they could offer any kind of sacrifice. So if you go to Jerusalem today, You'll find, or all throughout Israel, you'll find these ceremonial baths. And they're, they're these, these, typically these stone structures, and, and you walk down through these stone steps, and typically they have a little bit of a covering. It's almost like a, like a stone kiddie pool with a little, bit of a little bit of a shade over it. And so what would have happened was the people would have stripped down from their clothes, and they would have gone into this pool. Now, if it was a lady, what she would have done is as she went into the pool, there would have been other ladies on the side of the pool with sticks, and they would have pushed their hair under the water to make sure that they were, they were totally covered, that they were totally cleansed. And then at that point, they could come into the presence of God. We, one of the most interesting things that, that, that happened for me as we were there in Israel is we, we stood in a spot where we believed that perhaps King David's palace would have been. And as you, you look westward there towards the Mount of Olives and, 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 you, and you look down into the, into the valley, you could, you could see some homes and some remnants of homes there. And you begin to have this picture of maybe what would have happened is King David should have been out fighting wars as kings did in that season. And yet he was, he was there on the roof of his palace and he looked down and he would have seen this Bathsheba. And she would have been going in, perhaps to signify that she had just come out of her menstrual cycle. She was done with her period. And now that she was both physically and spiritually clean, and you begin to understand the depravity of what King David was doing in that moment and calling her to himself as he, as he sees this. And so certainly when you hear about John out there and he's baptizing, there would, have been, there would have been some semblance to this, but there's a second, and I think a much more direct tie to another form of baptism. You, you heard me say as we walked through Nehemiah that God's call to his people to be separate and set apart and different from the other nations was, was not a racial thing, it was a spiritual thing. It was a matter of holiness. And that God routinely offered opportunities for anybody that wanted to follow after him. Anyone that wanted to become a worshiper of Yahweh, there was a way in which they could do that. They're called proselytes. I want to write that word down. Proselytes. Those are people that want to become followers. They want to convert to Judaism. They want to become just like the Jews. And so by the time that John came along, there were certain procedures in place for how a man or a woman could become a, a, a follower of Yahweh. Firstly, if the person was a male, no matter what the age, they needed to be circumcised. So circumcision was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. It was a recognition that man is, we're at our root sinful. 
in our, in our very flesh is, is the progeny of Adam, that we've all inherited his sin, that we are sinful. And so in order to, is a, is a symbol, not just, a, not just like a brand upon us to show that we belong to God, but, but is, a, is a symbol, is a recognition of the fact that the flesh is in fact sinful, we remove a part of the flesh. Not any, just any part of the flesh, but the part of the flesh at the very point at which procreation happens. The very part of the flesh through which God sees fit to allow us to reproduce. And so, in doing so, it's a recognition. We need to be cleansed of this original sin, our sinful nature. We're confessing. In addition to that, these men would have been, would have been recognizing that we want to be cut off from our old life in the flesh. We want to live a new spiritual life as those that, those that follow after God. After this, they would have been ready to be immersed in water, baptized. And I say immersed here because anytime you talk about baptism, the question of mode always comes up. How is it that we're supposed to baptize? And when you look in Scripture, you'll see the word bapto or baptizo, and, and, and it's always the idea that it's dipping or submerging or going down in. So much so that if you, if, if you read through the accounts of baptism in Scripture, you'll routinely hear them talking about people going down into the water or coming up out of the water, or the baptizer going into the water. Or you'll, you'll read about them saying that a certain place was a good place for baptism because there was much water there. seems to me if all you were doing was sprinkling, you don't need much water, and yet they have much water. But, and we need to be careful with drawing our, our theology, our understanding of Scripture from tradition, but I do think there's some wisdom in looking at the fact that the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church, since the very beginning, they have been baptizing by immersion. If anybody understands Greek, probably it's the Greeks. And so surely there's some wisdom there to understanding these words meaning to submerge. But, but the point of the matter is that these men would have been baptized, and women at this point, they would have been baptized. They would have been immersed in water and it was a it was a recognition that not only are we sinners by nature but we're sinners by practice we need spiritual cleansing not only have have we inherited adam's sin but we've gone ahead and piled onto that with our own and that we need to be cleansed we need to be we need to be raised to walk in a new life as we're going to talk about later but more than that they were pointing forward to the, the need for repentance and for cleansing from their sins before they could ever join with the people of god and it was then and only then that they were ready for the third piece of the puzzle which was to offer a sacrifice it was at that point that they were finally able to offer the sacrifice that was necessary the animal and then be sprinkled with the blood of that animal and this was the recognition that not only are we sinful by nature and not only do we need to be cleansed by that sin but it's only through the shedding of blood that you may have the forgiveness of sin that God was willing to accept a, a sacrifice in your place this innocent sacrifice and by sprinkling the blood upon them acknowledging that th this is my blood that should have been shed and yet this animal has stood in my place and so the people of Israel, they would have been very familiar with this. They would, have, they would have understood this idea of baptism for these other people, for these proselytes. And so you've got this weird guy named John now, and he's going up and down the Jordan River, and he's doing this baptizing. And you can go to Israel now. You can, just south of Galilee, there's a spot there where a lot of people, probably many of you in this room, have gone and been baptized. And I think what you'll find as you go there is that the Jordan River is beautiful, but it's about the least impressive thing you'll ever see. Like, unless you knew what happened there, you wouldn't be that impressed. It's three foot deep, apart from the flood season, like when Joshua led the Israelites through. It's three foot deep in most places. It dips down to 10 at its deepest. It's only about 30 yards wide. It doesn't rush along. You couldn't tube there, I don't think. So there's, there's nothing particularly impressive about this, but, it, but what we see here is that this guy named John, he's out there at the River Jordan, and he's baptizing. And so he, he's telling people, you need to 
You need to confess your sins. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. But you need to see who it is that's coming out to him here. What does it say? All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, when it says all of Judea and all Jerusalem, I don't believe that that's meant to be literally every single person. But it shows you just the mass of people that's coming out to him. But who are these people? Who are the people that lived in Jerusalem? Who are the people of Judea? They're the Jews. The Israelites, the children of Abraham. These weren't people that were saying, I want to give up my old Gentile life and now become a Jew. These weren't the peoples from among the nations. These were the children of Abraham. I need you to see how radical and offensive this is. These weren't people that were saying for the first time, I want to follow after God. These were the people of the promise. These were the people that thought they were in. These were the people that knew the law and to the best of their abilities had kept the law. These are the people that looked at those guys over there and said, yeah, you need to tell them something over there, those nations, those dirty dogs, those people that God doesn't love. And so you can imagine as John comes along and he says, listen, you need to prepare the way because the king is coming. God is coming. And when the king comes, he's going to pour out that which is earned, that which is deserved. And you can imagine him going, yeah, you tell him. Get ready, Gentiles. He's coming. Come on, God. Come on. He says, no, I'm talking to you. You need to repent. You need to be cleansed. This is different. This is radical. This is a shift. They would not have received that well. And you, you, can, you can imagine as, as the people came out, you actually you, you hear in Luke's gospel, you hear the tension there as these people came out believing that they were cool. Here's what he says to them. You brutal vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up these stones as children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Say, don't hide behind Abraham. Don't believe that you've trapped God because of his promise that he's going to bless the children of Abraham. He could destroy all of you and raise up new children from the rocks and still be faithful. Don't believe that just because you're the you're the children of Abraham, that you call yourself Israel, that you're actually Israel. True Israel repents. True Israel believes. True Israel looks forward to the promises. True Israel will recognize this king. So you need to prepare your heart in all these ways, in repentance and preparation for the king, that you can recognize him when he comes. Some of you have completely missed the point. Some of you believe that it was all about laws, and so you just kept piling on laws instead of finding out that you couldn't please this God, that you desperately needed another to come in your place. And so when the king comes, you're going to miss him because you're standing in your own power. And so I'm telling you to repent. I'm telling you to be baptized. Who does this guy think he is? You don't talk to these people like this. This is scandalous. And yet at the same time, they're asking him, who do you think you are? And what, whose authority do you speak to us like this? He says, well, it's not my own. He says, I'm not the guy you need to be looking to. That's what he says in verse 7 here. He says, and he preached saying, after me, he, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's there and he's saying, listen, you need to repent, you need to believe, you need to be baptized, but you don't need to look at me as your Savior. You don't need to look at me as the Messiah or the Christ or Elijah or any of those things. The one who's coming after me, the eternal king that's coming after me, I'm not fit to touch his feet. That's as low as it gets. You think you're grossed out by feet today? Imagine living in a time where people were open-toed sandals with no socks. They didn't bathe every day, and they walked along dusty paths. That was a job for the lowest of the servants. And what he's saying is, in his kingdom, I'm not even fit to do that, to untie the strap of his sandal. You think that I preach with great authority? Wait until you see him. 
You think that I challenge you in my words? Wait until you hear him. You think I speak with power? You have no idea. The one that is coming, I'm not fit to even touch his filthy feet. Jesus' feet did get dirty, by the way. Part of what it means to be fully man. What he's saying is, I'm not even fit within his kingdom. I'm the lowest within his kingdom. And you've got to remember, this is the guy that Jesus said about whom? There, of, the, of, the, of the sons of women, there has never been one greater than John the Baptist. He said, you can look high and low. You're never going to find anybody greater than this dude. And he's saying, yeah, well, I'm not even fit to touch your feet, King Jesus. I'm not even, I'm not even suitable to untie the strap of your sandal. And he says, the one that comes, not only is going to be different than me in holiness, he's going to be different than me in power. So much greater than me, you see, because I baptize with water, but he baptizes in Holy Spirit. And I, and I, I told you, John, I mean, I told you that Mark doesn't waste much time. I mean, we're, we're in verse 8. We're in verse 8, and he's already coming to something I completely don't understand. We're eight verses into his gospel, and we've already outstretched anything I could properly understand or properly express to you when he says that he comes to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so I, I, I think this is, this is a different pattern for me as a preacher, but, but I think that when we come to a verse like this, I have baptized you with water, but he baptized you, with, he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I, I think we do good to ask three questions and then try to work through those questions. So the first question is, what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? The second question is, how does baptism of the Holy Spirit relate to believer's baptism that takes place in these waters? And then thirdly, what do we do about it? Now, I don't think there's any chance we're going to get through all these today, and that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get as far as we can, we'll hit pause, and we'll come back next week. And I'm believing that that's possibly a way that I ins uh, ensure job security for myself. I just give you a cliffhanger each week, and if you want to hear the rest, you've got to have me back. If not, you're always just going to wonder, because you couldn't find this anywhere else, right? And so, the question, what does it mean to be baptized? If you have your Bibles out still, go ahead and turn to Acts 1. I'll give you a second to turn to Acts 1. So, what does it mean to be to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so, by this, by this point, by Acts 1, we're going to pick up in verse 4. Jesus has been resurrected. He has spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. He has made it clear to everybody that he has, in fact, been, been resurrected physically. He's, he's eating with people. He's allowing them to touch his body. He's showing himself to be, to be resurrected. And, and he says this. I read Acts 1, 4 through 5, and then I skip to verse 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard of me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then skipping down to verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what he's saying is that, listen, John baptized, same words that John said, essentially, listen, John baptized with water. I, in fact, am going to baptize with the Holy Spirit just a few short days from now, but you're not ready to do anything until then. And you need to understand that I will go back to the Father because this Holy Spirit must be sent from God. This Holy Spirit cannot be sent from man alone. And so as you continue on, you see, and, and flip over to chapter 2, what you see is that Jesus does, in fact, ascend to heaven, and he, he had told the people, look, you need to hide out here. And so they are. They're hiding out in a house. And as I told you last week, tradition tells us that this house may well have been the house of John Mark and his mother Mary, but the, the, the location certainly fits, but they're there, and whatever this house is. And then Acts 2, 1 through 4 says this, 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what you see is this rushing wind and these tongues of fire, they come upon these people and they're completely transformed. Completely transformed so much so that man like Peter that had three times denied Christ, he is there and he is preaching this first, this powerful, this, this first sermon in the life of the church. He's there and he's preaching and you could see that people are just absolutely amazed because they knew who these guys were. They were just huddling in a room in fear as God had told them to, but they were still, they were huddling there. These were men that had not shown any incredible power apart from what Christ did in them. And now here they are and they're speaking and they're changed and they're transformed. And Peter seeing the confusion on the people's face. If you skip to verse 32, he says this, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this which you yourselves have seen and heard this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit he's saying this change that you have seen this difference that you have seen our ability to now speak to you with power and authority our ability to speak to you in words that you can hear our confidence that we see this change this transformation this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit has now been poured out upon us much like water is poured upon a man in baptism, or a man has come up out of water in baptism, the Holy Spirit has now engulfed us, completely drenched us, soaked us. You think about when I come up here and I baptize somebody, you'll often see me, depending on the size of the person, as I lift them up, you'll often see me do this. That's because when they come out of that water, water's coming with them. And yet as we are, we are soaked in the Holy Spirit, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, these people would have been drenched, immersed, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see three other instances in Scripture where this looks very similar. Because you see, at that time, when Jesus ascended to heaven and he left his, his followers there in that room, they were already believers. They were already saved. They were already followers, right? I mean, he had, he had said at times, ye of little faith. But it indicates they had faith, right? They had, they had, they had turned from themselves and they had followed Jesus Christ. So it is, it is very safe to say that in that room, those men were believers, and that then sometime later, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then we read in Acts 8, we read, we read some similar, three actually similar stories. In, in Acts 8, what we see is that Peter and John, they find out that some believers in Samaria have believed in the word of God. And so Peter and John, they go to check it out for themselves and they lay hands on these men and they pray for them. And they too receive the Holy Spirit in these mighty ways. Then if you flip ahead to Acts 10, what you'll see is that there's a man named uh, Cornelius and he's a Gentile. And he sends word to Peter under the direction of God to come to him and speak to him. And so Peter packs up and he goes there to Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Judea. He goes there and he meets with this guy named Cornelius. And, and he preaches the word there. And to all that believe, they receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized. And then if you flip down to Acts 16, or 19, excuse me, you'll see another instance in which Paul arrives at Ephesus, which is in just, just south of Turkey, of present-day Turkey, representing the ends of the earth. And what you'll see there is that he arrives and he finds out that they had received the baptism of John, but not yet the proper baptism in the name of Christ. And so they're baptized. He lays hands on them and prays, and they too receive the Holy Spirit. These big, outward, robust events in which the Holy Spirit comes upon the people. And so there's churches all over this country that they take this and they believe that these extraordinary times are the pattern for all creation. That for the church today, that we're to look to these extraordinary events 
Like that at Pentecost, like that in these three instances I've just shown you, and that that's the way that God works. That man is baptized, that he comes to believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he undergoes water baptism, he is saved, and then at some later date there's a separate event in which the Holy Spirit comes rushing upon him. And that what we're to do then is we're to be, we're to be saved, we're to confess our sin, believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and then we continually pray that God would someday send his Holy Spirit. We pray that he would cleanse us of our sins, and we beg him, God, please, at some point, would you send upon us your Holy Spirit? But I need you to understand how what, number one, how wrong this is, and number two, how this creates a caste system within the church, that there are the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots, that there's this separation, that there's those greater Christians, those that have received the Holy Spirit, and then there's those that haven't. But if you look at the pattern that I just laid out for you, you'll see how so, so clearly what it was that God was doing. If you listen to what Jesus said, what he said was, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Where did I just tell you he went? On the day of Pentecost, where were they? Jerusalem? Where was Cornelius? Judea? Where were the Samaritans? That was an easy one. Where were the Samaritans? Samaria. And in Ephesus, the ends of the earth. What was happening was that here in this time, this transitional period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this time at which you no longer related to God as a father in heaven or even as the G Jesus Christ, the one walking next to you, but now the Holy Spirit would come and reside within you, that the veil was torn and no longer were we separated from God in any way, that he would fully come to dwell within us for all eternity. He would, he would hold us tight in his hands, that God needed to make clear to people that this was something magnificent. He needed to make clear to the Jews, this isn't just a promise for you. And so you see as this, these circles get bigger, these concentric circles as they get bigger, God continued to work in these extraordinary ways to make clear, they too. Because spiritual activity is hidden. You can't always see, this th see these things. And so what he was doing was he was making clear to the Jews there, yes, God, these people outside of who you think of as the Jews of Israel, they too have my Holy Spirit. That's what was happening. And so we can't set our pattern after this. And then if we read the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The key word there is, for in one spirit, we were all baptized. Some of your Bibles, if you've got a King James Bible, it says for by one spirit. That's wrong. I looked at the Greek. It's E-N, N. In one spirit you have been baptized. All, who? All believers. All parts of the church, one body. It's not saying all those that have got this second gift called the Holy Spirit and then the rest of you sorry suckers don't have it. The rest of you sorry suckers aren't part of the body. He's saying we are all one body because we have all been baptized in one spirit. We've all received this Holy Spirit. Then if you listen... Listen to his words in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. One body, one church, one baptism, one spirit. And so that that which was evidenced in mighty ways in the book of Acts, and that special and unique time, the apostolic time in which God was doing special things to make very clear what it was that was happening, that which was outward and loud and boisterous and easy to see, now ha happens much more subtly within us. That the moment at which you were saved, the moment at which you repented and believed, called on the name of the Lord and were saved, that the Holy Spirit not only regenerated you, made you into something new, but at that point you were baptized in the Spirit. This is something we have to wait for later. 
Is it right and good to continually pray to be filled with the Spirit? Yes. How does God fill you with the Spirit at the moment of your salvation and then continue to fill you? Because he's God. Don't ask questions. But it's right and it's good for us to ask that we be cleansed of sin. It's right and good that we ask him to equip us and prepare us for battles that are ahead, temptations that are ahead, trials that are ahead. Yeah, we've got to see that we all have this, the same spirit. Listen to the words of Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus as our Savior. He poured out richly upon us. That at, that, at that moment, we were transformed. At that moment, we were regenerated. We were created into something new. This is what it means to be born of water and to be born of spirit. No longer slaves to fear. No longer under the power of the evil one. That we can do righteousness. That we can love the brothers. That we can actually understand what it is that God's saying in his word. You ever wonder how one day you didn't believe in Jesus and the next day you did? It was this. The work of the Holy Spirit. That he brought you to new life. That he awakened you to the idea that you're a sinner and desperate need of a savior that he's allowed you to overcome the world he's given you a heart of flesh that you're protected from the evil one that you're now a temple of the holy spirit this isn't a thing that we strive for this isn't a thing that we worry about this isn't a thing that that some have and some do not it's the it's the moment and and it looks different in everybody's life and each of us are at some different stage in this process called sanctification the process in which the Holy Spirit is molding you into the image of Christ, certainly it's going to look different for different people. God greets us at different places. We're built differently. And yet we don't look to somebody and say, well, you must have the Spirit and I do not. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each believer is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's talking about spiritual gifts. At that moment, you're endowed with spiritual gifts. Not all the spiritual gifts, but God has gifted you for service to the body. He doesn't give you these gifts so you can run off and make a name for yourself. He doesn't give you these gifts so you can go out and serve yourself. He's gifted you spiritually so that you can serve him, so that you can further the kingdom, so that you can preach the gospel, so that you can make other disciples. In addition to that, while you only have some of the spiritual gifts, you will bear spiritual fruit. It's branches connected to the vine, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things will now flow out of you because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Not because you are smarter somehow, not because you've overcome yourself, because this is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to work in and through you. Moses had prayed for this day. You remember as Moses' guys, they come to him, they go, Moses, these dudes over here, they're trying to do spiritual stuff. You should make them stop. And he says, why? We pray for the day when God's Spirit would come upon all men, when all men would be endowed by the Spirit and equipped by the Spirit and used of the Spirit to do things. And then Joel prophesied about this very day. And then the day came. And now the day has come. The Holy Spirit now lives within you. Then 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, keeping, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That God's, not only does God's Spirit come upon you and equip you, not only does God's Spirit come upon you and transform you, not only does God's Spirit come upon you and raise you to new life, not only does God's Spirit come upon you and sanctify you and change you in all these ways. In addition to all these things, God's, God's Spirit comes upon you as a seal, and God's seal cannot be broken. His inheritance cannot be revoked. That because we have that Holy Spirit within us, we are secure for all eternity. 
This is why we can, we can speak about things like security of believers. Once saved, always saved, because once that spirit is within us, there's nothing we can do then to walk away from that. There's nothing we can do to break that seal or to break that bond or to give up that inheritance. That that's the assurance that we have as the Holy Spirit works in our life. That's why it's such an incredible blessing when we do these things in service to him. When we find ourselves doing things that we didn't otherwise do, when we find ourselves understanding Scripture in a way we didn't before, when we find ourselves more faithfully believing than we ever have before, when we find ourselves loving the body more than we ever have before, these are all assurances that Spirit is within us. This should encourage us, encourage us that we are in fact His, that we are sealed, that we are saved, that we are secure. Time's up. This is good stuff, guys. Not because I'm saying it's good stuff because it's in God's word. You talk about encouragement. You talk about security. You talk about knowing what it is that God has done in your life and how it is that he does the things that he does. These incredible mysteries that we will never fully comprehend. And yet at the same time, we should find so much assurance and understand that it is, in fact, all his work. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, Father. We thank you that he, we thank you that he, he is he, that he's not some, he's not some force. This isn't Star Wars. He's not, he's not some force. He's not some idea. He's not some combination that he is fully God and yet a separate being. That he has personally come. That we're not only baptized in water, but baptized in the spirit. And we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit, Father. It is in the Spirit now that we pray that you would help us to worship you rightly. Father, if there's one here that's not yet trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ, we know that it's by the Spirit that you can call them to yourself. That you can bring them to spiritual life. Bring them to an awareness of their sin and their need of a Savior. Father, we know that's the work of the Spirit. We know that the Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. And so we pray, Father, that today as we're in this place that you would do that, that you would change hearts, that you would change lives. But above all, Father, we pray that you would be glorified. We love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.